to me, Yellowstone for us, and I think wild places for others everywhere, it gives you perspective. Like when we still get into that period of a day or a week and it's just harried and busy and we're just trying to keep up, we have to remember, go for a walk. <laughs> and it's incredible what even a half hour walk outdoors together does. It's like you can leave all that stuff aside for a while. You're, we're more creative. We come up with more ideas when we're out on a hike or out sitting on a hill watching elk or, or something like that. And it just refreshes you in a way that for us, I, speaking for you too, it's like nothing else can do that. Nothing else gives you, in essence, the gift of yourself <laughs> like wild places. Welcome to this week's episode of the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. This week we had the pleasure of catching up with George Buman and Jenny Golding, who together with their son George, have chosen to live in Gardner, Montana, on the border of Yellowstone National Park. They share their stories and life in nature through George's sculpture and a website called A Yellowstone Life. We had such a fun and energizing discussion with George and Jenny while sitting in their truck in the Yellowstone National Park. We learned a little bit about the importance of nature and what it means to live a deliberate life. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. I want to find out, Jenny, maybe we'll start with you. Can you tell us, okay, so now we're in uh, Yellowstone National Park, yeah, but can we go <laughs> right back to the beginning? And can you tell us where were you born and where did you grow up? Hmm. In the beginning, <laughs> I was actually born in Florida and my family moved around a bunch. So Florida, Louisiana, Maryland, and then college at Virginia Tech. And that's where I lived the longest, Blacksburg, Virginia. And that's where George and I met. And it was while, and we went camping all the time as kids. I think, you know, that's how I developed my love of nature for sure. And, and that was a family excursion? As a family, okay. yeah. We went, we went camping every summer for a couple weeks. Um, and once we went out west, but mostly it was, you know, east coast, the Smokies, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, that kind of stuff. And um, while I was in, after I graduated from a wildlife science degree at Virginia Tech, um, I came out to Yellowstone and worked on a coyote research project. And so that's how I discovered Yellowstone. And um, George and I met later in, at Virginia Tech. He was doing his graduate work. And um, he graduated and I quit my job and released a music CD because I was doing random, I don't know, songwriting stuff at the time. And <laughs> we said, oh, let's move out west. So uh, we started applying for every job we could apply for in Yellowstone. In Gardiner specifically? No, just Yellowstone National Park. Okay. Yeah. And um, we got one out at the Buffalo Ranch, which we'll drive by. And um, we came together. I was working at the ranch, managing their programs and... George was teaching, and we've been here ever since. So. And why specifically Yellowstone? Is that because you, you fell in love with it when you did the Coyote Project? Yes, partly. I mean, I think when I was younger, you know, high school, college years, I did some backpacking guiding in New Mexico. I did a road trip out west, and there was this allure of moving out west, you know, move to the mountains somewhere. And I think that was the initial desire. But then once we came to Yellowstone, once I came to Yellowstone the first time, and then, you know, when we came out together, I think we still had this general, let's go out west somewhere. But Yellowstone, man, it just sinks its teeth into you. And more so than any other national park you've yeah, been to. Yeah, and for me, I think at first, at least, it was the animals, you know, I mean, wildlife um, and the ability to see so many and, and watch them interact on the landscape is just um, unparalleled in a lot of places. And so there's that, um, that I think helped us fall in love in the beginning. And then, you know, it's after a while, after you're here, then you start to understand, oh, the volcano and these thermal features. And, you know, I mean, it took us a while, even the first summer I was here. And then when we came back, you know, we spent all our time in Lamar Valley and on the Northern Range watching animals. And we're like, yeah, we could go to Old Faithful, but 
I don't know, geysers, whatever, let's go watch wolves, you know, and bears. And then when you start to realize that the wildlife of Yellowstone is only just a very part of the story, you know, the how the volcano and the thermal features and all that drives the geology, which provides the habitat for the animals. I mean, it just, and may, I, I think you could get that level of understanding in any other place, you know, that love getting to know a place in the multiple layers. But but really, first and foremost, for me, it was the animals. It's quite a story. And George, you grew up in uh, New York State in your in your mother's studio. And I want to understand how you, you, you got from such a metropolis to, to where you are today, <laughs> especially in those early years. <laughs> well, to be clear, the area of New York that I grew up in was dairy country. Okay, because okay. like, when we think of New York, we yeah. just think <laughs> of buildings. Like. And you're not alone. You're, even in the Western United States, people hear those two words, New York, and all they think of is concrete and skyscrapers. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the Guilty. state of New York. Yeah. The state of New York is vast <laughs> and very rural for the most part. And um, so I grew up north of Syracuse, New York, if any of you listeners know where that is. And uh, very, uh, very much uh, lake country, you know, lots of lakes and rivers and swamps. And, and that was my playground as a kid. You know, I, I didn't have a lot of neighbors and other kids to play with. So I would, after I was old enough, take off in the canoe and go to the other side of the lake and paddle up the creeks and swamps. And that makes much more sense than the buildings. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I was a a, a child of the woods, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just loved it. And every time I went <clears throat> fishing with my grandfather, like we grew up not far from, um, literally about a hundred yards from my maternal um, grandparents. You know, he, my grandfather was a uh, very formative in my growth as a as a human being, really. And he was an amateur archaeologist and historian, and he started this museum. And, and uh, mom's, of course, a sculptor, and just surrounded by creative storytelling people. And and um, every time we went fishing, you know, it'd be like we were experiencing. I was a kid; it was experiencing the passage of, you know. Um, you know, Samuel Champlain, when he came down with the Algonquins to lay siege to the uh, Onondaga Iroquois, <laughs> you know, and, and this was, you know, where Sir William Johnson came through to, um, you know, on the, the campaigns of the, um, what Europe is known as the Seven Years' War, French and Indian War in, in North America. And you know, so this, this place was alive with the, the history and past events through my grandfather and knowing this and then helping him at the museum and and starting to to just share those experiences with other people at a very early age and went on to follow my my natural history interests all the way through graduate school um teaching some even when i didn't have to you know having a full ride so to speak in a funded graduate program but still opted to teach a couple classes because i I really enjoyed it just i've always gotten a real charge out of seeing the light bulb come on for someone over something new or special. And that's partly you know, a little bit of what led me away from wildlife research. Um, I did my graduate work. Ditto. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, did my graduate work on a, a forest bird uh, known as the rough grouse and, and looking at predator prey interactions with that as part of a very large, large research project, one of the largest probably anywhere in history. And I came out of that feeling like I had put three and a half years into this project, this product, a thesis, these publications, and who's reading it? Myself, my colleagues on the project, and maybe some other professionals, but having grown up in this environment where the point was sharing these very special things as broadly as possible was missing for me and I thought man I I was quite disillusioned and so when she, Jenny said let's go to Yellowstone I'm like great <laughs> I'm there I don't care as long as there's some weeds and water and places to run around I'm good twist your rubber arm <laughs> yeah interesting you know after we did come here it was it was actually tough for me she was working crazy busy and I was teaching some but really it was a a bit of an identity crisis at that point of what am I supposed to do in my life because you hadn't decided to do sculpture and you just finished a graduate degree in wildlife science, you know, right. and so. Yeah, it was, it was, that was one of the tougher stretches because it was, 
you know, do I do, illust I had been doing some illustration work, do I write and do illustration, and just, I tried that, and I was miserable, and I'd force myself to do some other things, and it just didn't feel right, it was just, it was just crummy. Here we are in, in Wonderland, literally. I feel like crap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's yeah. Emotionally, mentally, and it took a while, just, you know, a, a good friend from Virginia had great advice, she's like, just do it, float your boat each day. Do the things that you're excited about or interested about. And that, that was very helpful to just get through some of those doldrums and, and open up to all that this place. And, and frankly, in retrospect, all that I had to, to work with as, a, as an individual. And, um, Humans need purpose, don't they? We seem to, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're afflicted with that. Yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and we push at times too hard, I think, certainly on ourselves. I heard, heard it great once that instead of following your passion, um, follow curiosity. Mm. Uh, and that being a little gentler guide in life than either going to make it or break it, or you're, you're yeah. supposed to do this and you failed. Now what are you going to yeah. do? That was your passion. <laughs> yeah, now you're nothing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's good advice to... Go easy on yourself. You know, don't don't try to answer everything at once and realize that anything really worth doing is going to take a little time and you'll be happier yeah. in the long, long run. Yeah. The best things don't come quick. To everybody out there, it's an incredibly unique existence living, well, on the border of, of Yellowstone. It's unbelievably picturesque. I wonder if you guys could just describe what we're looking at and where we are exactly well, we're we're sitting on um, on the edge of Blacktail Ponds, which is a glacially carved series of small lakes, ponds um, that were created eleven thousand years ago as the glaciers scraped through here and, and completely flattened this area. And, and in the intervening time, it's become populated in patches and in areas with sagebrush over much of the big open areas and patches of lodgepole pine trees and, and Douglas fir. Um, on the particularly north-facing slopes to our right, as it happens to be right now. And um, it's termed for, for ecology types as um, um, sagebrush steppe habitat. And these places, keep in mind, Yellowstone has never been logged. It's not been mined. It's not been distorted in, in any fashion compared to the surrounding lands to, to any real measure. And so this is this is a window into all of our past, certainly for indigenous Native Americans, but to even our early European ancestors. This is very close, aside from a couple roads and a few buildings here and there, what would have been encountered. And uh, we're in the depths of <laughs> what looks like winter, even though technically we're into spring. Yeah, this would be our definition of winter. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, this is uh, far, far beyond our winter yeah. in Melbourne, that's for sure. Everything is very white <laughs> right now. <laughs> All the ground surface is covered in about half a meter of snow, up to probably a meter of snow right now. Um, in past years, we would have been rid of our snow right now, but in a way, it's kind of neat too, especially for you being here. You can see the tracks and even though things are not visible maybe right at this instant, you can tell that they're, they're here. Yeah, mm -hmm. we can see tracks across the snow. Bison and coyote tracks and maybe some of those are wolf tracks or even bear tracks. There's been some bears sighted already here. They're starting to come out of hibernation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've only ever seen bears in movies. I don't really believe they're real. <laughs> yet, to, yet to believe they're real. I mean, yogi bears one thing, but yeah. these things, no, <laughs> really? <laughs> and you guys have grizzlies here, right? Black bears and grizzly bears. Black bears and grizzlies, wow. So can we ask you guys, can you give us like a brief history of Yellowstone? When did it start and why is it so famous? Yellowstone's the world's first national park. I mean, that's one of the things that is really amazing about it is it's the first time in the U.S. as well as the world that, you know, a government set aside a body of land to protect it for the future, for the, the people to enjoy. And so, um, you know, that, that starts it right there. And it was set aside more for the scenery and the thermal features at first than it was for the wildlife. But, um you know, in my opinion, a lot of things sort of flow from there. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was initiated by an act of Congress in 1872, and um, it was was basically an island in the wilderness of the American West that was set aside because of these unique thermal features and and landscape. But um, interestingly enough, in this modern age, it's now an island of wilderness in a sea of humanity, really. And so it's preserved a window into what this place has looked like um, since since the beginning. I want to ask you a bit about your sculpture, how you use that medium to convey or pass on the message of your experience in nature. And um, Joy and I watched your TED Talk, which was fantastic which was a really really excellent and we'll pop a a link to that in the in the show notes for the listeners but i'm wondering if you wouldn't mind just giving us your thoughts on how you use sculpture as a medium to pass on your experience in nature yeah i think the story broadly stated is very powerful that we as humans are wired for stories you know you look how survival information was passed on in, in indigenous cultures and it was done verbally with a story, you know, and, and thankfully, you know, as human beings, we have, we actually have multiple ways of telling our story. How do you make people care? How do you influence them to live more sustainable lives? And, and it's, it's through telling your story, our story. And I honestly didn't want to do sculpture. <laughs> I grew up with it. My mom is a sculptor and I was like, got to about 12 after loving art and nature. And I got, you know, we were always roped into helping out with projects and things. And I I hit this point where I'm like, this is nuts. I wouldn't want to do this for a job. You know, it's like, you don't make that much money and you're running around all the time. And, you know, so I took off with my other passion, which was um, natural history and and all the way through a, a graduate degree in wildlife biology, only to come back largely inspired by Yellowstone to the art. And, and this was even in the context of starting at about 10 or 12. I was helping my grandfather curate this museum that he started in the part of New York State that I grew up in. And it covered human history, you know, right from the earliest uh, native inhabitants all the way up to World War I. You know, it was broad swath of history, but just got used to speaking with people and, and telling them about this area that you know, my family happened to be the second settlers in that part of New York and just how it was entwined with all these large historic events. But went on to teach college level courses and just very verbal as a kid. But when we moved here to Yellowstone, it was it was overwhelming in a way almost. There was just so much coming at you through all the different senses that I didn't I didn't have words for it. Which is really unusual. <laughs> <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> but it's true. It, it really is true. It's just like, I, why do you love this place? You know, and it was almost, I can't, I can't tell you really. You know, they all, every word you could pull out of the dictionary seems to beat around this bush of w- what's the essence of this place. and. And so I, I grew up with sculpture, so I, I kind of went back to that as a way to, if I couldn't tell you, just try to show you some other facet. You know, sculpture doesn't always work, painting, drawing doesn't always work, speaking doesn't always work, but I think collectively they, they help tell of our experience here in a way that, that nothing else can. You know, someone want to do a, ask you to do a commission piece or ask me to do a commission piece or something and I'm really reluctant and I usually say no because I'm not, I'm not able to give what I have to offer. And what I have to offer is that we made a life decision to live in a place like this and the things that we've come to understand, no one has ever seen those things in the way we have and, and have the ability to share that in the way we do. So a Yellowstone life and, and the sculpture, a ways to try to take some of those things. Like a great example is like bones. I just, I've always loved bones and anatomy. And even before I was doing sculpture, I'd 
made my own data sheets to like take measurements of carcasses and things like that. <laughs> and I'm always hunting down, you know, dead animals. <laughs> yeah, but as you just kit in the back of the yeah, truck. We literally yeah, have yeah. a carcass kit in the back of the truck, which is uh. a tackle box for fishing that I threw all my fishing tackle out of and put in calipers and tape measures and my own data sheets and pens and pencils and dissecting knives and rubber gloves. You know, that's how <laughs> serious this rabbit hole is. <laughs> wow. So, but I just had a passion for that. And so when, for me, the sculpture came back, it was like a, um, it was like a confluence of rivers in my life, the, the passion for, for nature and the passion for art. And they both came hand in hand as a way to better experience what's around us, but then also to better share it once we're in contact with other people to, to convey some semblance of why we just we can't stop i wanted to ask you a little bit more so that i understand i mean when we watched the ted talk this is amazing for the listeners They've, you've got to go check out this ted talk because george actually does a live demonstration of his sculpture while he tells the story of a wolf crossing a river with its babies with her babies trying to get these naughty babies across the river who just refuse to go and has to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. And he explains his process as he goes, which is really cool. So, and, and I think one of the key things that you mentioned in that TED talk was that this sculpture is a representation of hundreds of memories and your subconscious pulling through tons and tons and tons of sightings of wolves over your lifetime, all sort of being represented into that, that moment and into that sculpture and that, that particular story. And I wanted to understand, and I think you've already been explaining this this whole time, but just so that I can sort of carve it out, because this is the way my brain works, into two segments. You do this either from memory, leveraging that subconscious, or you would be out there in the wild looking at a bison and sculpting it from a visual cue. Are those two different processes, or do you kind of blend them together when when you're out there and doing it in person? It's a blend and it's a spectrum. You know, some pieces are done entirely in the field. Like there's one um, um, entitled uh, Intermission of a bull elk bedded down in the middle of the day and he's been chasing the ladies all morning long. He's just exhausted, you know, so his <laughs> eyes are closed and his head is sort of canted back. And that was done in about eight hours wow. on two different days, purely in the field. So, you know, and the, and the TED Talk is, is not just show it's I work that fast a lot of times in the field because unlike a human model they don't stand they still. don't stand still and you can't say put your arm back up to where it was yeah you know I didn't just, quite get that can so, you just do that again please? <laughs> you have to absorb these at the level of understanding their basic architecture from the skeleton up so you know when you see that back and the leg in that position that set the mood so that, that's the foundation to the to the castle you know that's going to dictate everything above that so i can after watching for years know where the other legs had to be in relation to that even though the animal's now out of sight i know what muscles were engaged where the rib cage was positioned all these sorts of things so ideally i sculpt from life to capture those things because i'm continually having to to sift through the layers deeper and deeper you know to to pull out nuances and in, in form and things. But then, um, yeah, I don't generally work from any photographs or video. I'd take them, I, for years would take them and <laughs> hold on to those photos, don't delete those photos, you know, and he I never, never use them. them. <laughs> <laughs> You've just got that filing cabinet in your subconscious that you well, whip out. There, I, I read a um, great book, is, uh, I believe is the title was The, the Human Animal, and uh, it, referred to among other things that the mind the human mind um, specifically conscious subconscious um, memory are are really dynamic but conscious memory things you learn in a, a class and you write down in notes and you hear from a lecture or something you're actively aware that you're putting this stuff into your your data logger so to speak but on the order of a hundred to two hundred thousand times more information for each experience is being logged by your subconscious. It just that's that amazing. washes out anything. You know, it's like as we're sitting here, what's the temperature? Are you comfortable? Is the sun shining on you? What side is it shining? Are you hungry? Are you full? You know, is there um, any number of things? You know, how close are we to 
that was in the seats next to us. All these parts of us are recorded. And I try to use that as much as I can by being out as much as possible. And so when I start in on a piece, um, if it's in the studio, I may work and I, I max out my conscious memory. I'm like, I have no idea what elk lips look like in this situation. So I'll go up to the park <laughs> and I'll spend, I'll sit there with a spotting scope, a telescope, looking at elk lips at very close range <laughs> for, you know, hours and hours. And people come up and the, and the, you know, the Yellowstone tourists everywhere. Do you see a bear? You know, they see the telescope. They're like, do you, what is it? A wolf? And I'm like, do I really tell them what I'm looking at? <laughs> elk lips. Uh, elk lips and ankles. <laughs> <laughs> so try to try to build back up on that, you know, when I when I hit my own limits, so that I feel like I have the greatest degree of expressive freedom. I'm not stuck copying a photo and reproducing things that are artifacts of a two-dimensional representation. Mm -hmm. I'm not stuck with that leg being there. I have an understanding of the complete animal, their behavior, that individual, and their temperament. The, the tendons and the, the cartilage and all those things so I can freely move it here so that you, someone who's never even been here before, get some glimmer of what I experienced there, why I bothered. And some of these pieces take a long time. I'll, I'll work on a piece in the studio and if the animal's still alive, I'll often take it out into the park and try to finish it in front of them or do some finishing touches with them there and so whereas some pieces may be finished in a matter of hours i've had i have a lot of pieces that are more rooted in the studio that are four or five six eight years old wow and i mean some of these are even life size right we were having a look mm -hmm. at the, your website and yeah. they range from fairly small to yeah miniature to monumental and um when you invest in, in the time that we do to be out in the park like jenny and i do and you find something that is deeply moving and inspiring, I as an artist feel like I have a duty to represent that as best as I can. You know, so I, I don't like to just let it go, get it close enough. You know, I, I want this to, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I'm not sculpting a physical thing. What I'm trying to create for you, the viewer, is, is the thoughts, the, the feeling of being in the presence of that animal, more so than the architecture of their, their wolfness, their elkness, their bisonness. Anybody can do that, and you can do that very quickly, but what takes the years is a shift in the ground that the animal sculpture is standing on of two degrees, or a movement of the tail that's an eighth of an inch this way, and moving the ear a sixteenth of an inch that way and then leaving it alone for another couple months and coming back and saying okay even though the animal I saw that inspired this did nothing exactly like this is this getting to the point does this send the message that I I took home from that day in the park if we fast track to where we are today and you have this website up which is called the Yellowstone Life. It's just just for the listeners' benefit. What we've been referring to throughout this uh, this recording. Can you tell us a little bit about that and and what it is and what you plan to do with it? Yeah. So a Yellowstone Life for us is really a culmination of all the things we're passionate about: nature, art, Yellowstone, and wild places, wilderness. And for us. Um, we envision the site as, well, let me back up. For us, it's really a way for us to continue to share these experiences that we have in the park. And, you know, George has his artwork, but we, there's so many more stories we want to tell beyond those pieces. And, um, we really hope that by sharing our experiences and our connections with, you know, place and with animals, that it will inspire other people to do the same. And so the website is really for people who love Yellowstone, of course, they can come there and stay connected with what's going on, geeky wildlife stuff that we're into, you know. Um, but they can, you know, we also want to help people learn how to tune in to the animal language, these conversations, these communities going on all around them, and hopefully also inspire people to tell their own stories about their encounters in nature. And so, um, 
you know, our goal is really to develop a community of people who are interested in these types of things with us and deepening their relationship with, you know, whether it's Yellowstone or their backyard, you know, understanding, tuning in to the, to, to these conversations and just joining the journey with us. And it, it gives us an outlet, a way to share all the things that we love. So I wanted to get a little bit more specific, Jenny, around what is on the site today? What can people see there? Mm. So you can see um, a few different themes of things we tend to focus on. One is just simply what we call Yellowstone life, day-to-day, -day, things we encounter, things we see, what it's like to live here, what it's like to interact with animals every day. So you might see a post about that. Um, and then we have sort of a theme on the art of animals. So it might be a video... We had one recently of George talking about um, observations of wolves in the field and how he brought that back to the studio and, you know, was playing with the different ideas that came out of that encounter. And, you know, along with the art, you might see that or might have a video of George sketching or he might talk about this is how you build an armature for sculpture or something like that. And then there's this whole piece of what we often will call wild conversations. You know, here's what I'm listening to and what that's cluing me into on the landscape so you can find a video of um was it a screech owl no mm, a saw wet owl. of a saw wet owl this tiny little owl that george and little george found in the trees because of the calls of the chickadees and so we'll make little videos or how to's you know not just to say oh isn't this cool but here's how you can take this and sort of use this in your own backyard so we we do a lot of that the animal intelligence communication trying to show people what kind of conversations are happening that they can tune into. So Very cool. And I saw some practical how-to videos. There was one about tying a rope. Knot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's we we include things that, that tie us to the land, and that one was a little bit of a play on words because, um, you know, the land really supplies almost everything we need if we wanted to survive off it if we only knew how. Mm -hmm. And for us, it's not a survival thing, but it's more uh, a gateway to gratitude. I, I like to think of it. It's like, you know, you get to learn these individual plants or trees and, and they offer us things, you know, food or medicine if we really wanted it. And so whether we end up using it or not, it it's the doorway to having a chance to individually identify something out there, another living thing. And this thing freely provides us with X, Y, and Z if we really chose to, to take it up on it. And there's a particular plant that grows here in the park and not far from our home that you can use to make string rope. Oh. You know, if you, it's called um, Opossinum cannabinum. It's a, a Indian hemp as it's otherwise known as and across North America cultures. Um, used it for fishing nets and fishing line and a random piece of string you might need or a, you know a broken shoelace on the trail you'd be in pretty tough straits if your your bootlace broke and so that particular post was about going to gather this uh, dog bane is, is another common name for it with young George and just us getting to have quality time together but at the same time teaching him to recognize this plant when to harvest it for a particular use if he ever needed it. But at the same time, you know, it's just a chance to say, yeah, I, kn I know that guy. And then, and then we did a little video on how to actually make string from it if you wanted to. That's um, cool. Yeah. It sounds like a good resource for, you know, the end of the world and that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, make, make it <laughs> the, the other thing we'll, we'll do a lot of in our how-tos is just how to explore the park in a more relaxed manner and um, in, in our way. I mean, you know, so what you won't see on our site is how to see all the highlights of Yellowstone in one day yeah. because number one, it's impossible. And number two, it's not very much fun. And, you know, and you number three, you don't get to the essence of things. So we'll do, here's our five favorite things to do in the spring or our five favorite things to do in the fall or, um, you know, here's how we set up a day or, you know, our, our tips for seeing the most animals, you know, just sort of how to slow down, be present, notice the things around you, um, how to do it without being the total, the total tourist. Yeah, just yeah. being the tick box tourist. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I don't know how many times we've traveled to places and it's like, 
I know we're walking by stuff. Yeah. We're missing so many things, like just to have a local guide or someone to point you in the direction and say, make sure you notice that. Yeah. You know, or did you, you wanted to see X <laughs> or Y and, and it's right up there if, if you listen to that sound and do a yeah. little bit of looking. Depth rather than breadth, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Which makes me actually think of something I read on your site. Um, Jenny, there's this, this concept of living more deliberately. Um, which I think I read, like that, that theme is, is quite prominent on your site. Can you explain to the listeners what that means to you, what living more deliberately means to you? For us, it means um, running our lives instead of letting our lives run us. And, um, and as one piece of it, you know, choosing how busy we are, what kind of jobs we have, what kind of engagements we commit to so that we can carve out time to be in nature, to be together, to do those sorts of things. So one, one piece of it is the, the structure of the way we set up how we live and work. Um, another piece for us is simply being present and aware, you know, um, we're not just driving through Yellowstone ticking off boxes. We're, you know, taking a deep breath. We're taking quiet moments. We take it slow. We're noticing the things around us. I mean, I guess that's, to me, that's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very possible that we could be working anywhere <laughs> else and making much more money, but we opted for a, a different kind of currency you know, and in a quality of life for, for ourselves and, and our son, you know, how we wanted to raise him and the things we wanted him to be exposed to. And um, I think a lot of the good things in life, they don't come by chance. I'm sure that little George is going to be extremely grateful for this life you've given him. He's he's a lucky, lucky kid. I hope he knows that. <laughs> we hope so. I think he knows it a little bit. And I guess, yeah, George touched on something. I mean, we choose deliberately to live in a place where we can more easily be connected to the land and the sky and the animals and water and all those things. Um, not that you can't do that in other places, but that's just what we've chosen to do to make it easier to have those connections. And that, you know, and that involves choices for sure. Yeah. What you, what you choose. Um, and doing without, you know, without. there's, there's a lot of things that we really enjoy. You know, good food and good music. And <laughs> music and dancing. And, and, you know, events museums. and museums and, and stuff that um, it just doesn't go with wilderness. <laughs> right, right. But you prioritized. We did, you know, and we can travel to those things and maybe it'd be flip-flop for someone else, but... Maybe that's what little George will do. He'd be like, Mom, I'm going to Manhattan. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the urban jungle. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I doubt <laughs> we want him to have choices. You know, we want, that's that's my feeling is ultimate goal for for our child is that he just have choices in life wherever he wants to go. He has to know that they're open to him if he wants to work for them, and that um, he gets to choose. Yeah. Well, uh, you you mentioned on your website in the in the little intro on little George. How he, um, you know, he he lives here and has to dodge dodge Boston bison. on the way to mm. on the way to the bus stop. <laughs> yeah, he has to be one of the only That's kids in the world that has had that experience. Right. Practical education on another level, <laughs> right? Totally. We've had mornings where there's grizzly bear tracks, and we're looking around each corner with our bear spray in hand, hoping that we get him on the bus before the bear shows up. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's really tricky if you're a parent and you're into the whole free range child movement you know not so much supervision let your child run around outdoors and you know have adventures as they will we really believe in that but to a point it's like okay is it bear season around the yard or is it elk calving season you know because if it is then it it's comes not free ranging kids season. exactly yeah. it's like okay we check in a little bit more than we might actually if we live somewhere else you know there you are boundaries invite your friend over you guys have to go together <laughs> take this bear spray you know so he's learned how to use that stuff and we almost got to your favorite animal moments and i just want to make sure that we we capture those and record your best most memorable moments and encounters with animals yeah i imagine it's hard to pick favorites yeah. but what jumps to mind what first jumps to mind? perhaps <laughs> 
Yeah, it's like asking what's your favorite kid. Yeah. <laughs> which, which of your children is the, the best one? And yeah. <laughs> it's, it's um, you know, that's why it, I was really glad that we were able to come out in the park together to do this because every turn in the road, every view, every angle has a story, an experience, something that stands out that's, you know, sticks with me. But like right across the valley, you know, I, I was out watching one early spring morning and there was a black bear eating some greenery at the base of some of those trees. And it was munching along and munching along. And all of a sudden, you could see his head snap up and it looked to the left. And you could just tell by its movement something was afoot. And as it turns out, it was a much much bigger black bear <laughs> and, and this other bear comes in and it's doing the um what they call a cowboy walk they kind of stomp their feet their front legs especially and swing them sort of widely looking tough and brutish and and it ran this younger bear off smaller bear off of its greenery and chased it for a, a brief spell and then went back to eat some of its grass but just as an extra measure of solidifying the, the encounter it walked over to this one big douglas fir tree i can still see from here and uh they scent marked by rubbing their backs on the trees okay except it positioned itself on the opposite side of the tree we we're viewing from so the the bear stood up on its hind legs and disappeared behind this tree but all at once you see his knees stick out as it's doing this kind of plie move <laughs> plie plie as it's rubbing up and down its back and rubbing side to side you can see his front legs swinging back and forth and it dropped down on all fours sniffed the tree like it had done a good job and went back to eating <laughs> it's just every little nook and cranny of this place has these stories and other people have you know their own now is another instance that i uh, actually videotaped and put on youtube it was filmed right from here where there was a single wolf trying to get to a, a bison carcass that was in the flats here but it also happened to be right near a coyote den and we couldn't see the coyote den because it was in the embankment on our side of the valley and the hill wouldn't permit us to see but as soon as that wolf came into the area these three coyotes just bum rushed it and they were harassing it and trying to bite it on the butt and the tail and the legs and and this lone wolf just wanted breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> he just wanted a bite he to eat. He just wanted something to eat. <laughs> he just wanted something to eat. You know, and these coyotes just harassed it. And it's got its tail between its legs. And people would comment on, on social media like, oh, that wolf's sick. And it's like, no, it's just, it doesn't want its tail bitten off. <laughs> it's kind of acting very, very submissive in the presence of these this overwhelming force of coyotes. But ultimately... It couldn't get to the bison carcass because there were three or four bison guarding that carcass. And bison will have funerals. They, they will protect the dead and visit the dead, um, sometimes for many days. And so these three bison were sort of loosely standing guard over this carcass. And as the coyote got close and the, or the wolf got close and the coyotes were harassing, finally those bison just had it with all of them. And it was like, all of you, out! <laughs> and it proceeded to chase the coyotes and the wolf off. And, you know, the footage is showing all of them kind of running and looking over their shoulders like, oh, my gosh, you know, <laughs> tell these guys to lay off. There are really so many wonderful encounters. I mean, you just can't, nothing can replace being in your car with the windows down as a herd of bison in the rut, you know, bellows and swells and swirls around you or hiking in the backcountry and seeing from a distance, you know, bear, a bear, a grizzly bear and wolves fighting over a carcass. You know, those things are pretty amazing. Um, but what I think I love the most is, is two things really. One is everything's always a surprise. You know, you go out on any given day and you think, oh, it's the middle of the day. The animals aren't that busy. I'm not going to see that much. I'm getting kind of sleepy driving around in the car. And then all of a sudden, you know, something wow just pops out in front of you, whether it's a hawk that's just gone down and caught, you know, a snake or something in the sagebrush or whatever it is. There's always something surprising. And then I think part of, 
you know, and part of why we write about our experiences is just this thing of living near such a wild place and the day-to-day encounters when you're just going about your life. You know, you go out to walk the dog and there's, um, or you walk to the bus stop and there's a bear scat full of, you know, apples and berries and whatever from what they're eating in the fall and having to change your, your walking the dog patterns because the elk are calving up in the meadow up along the trail. And it's just those, those sorts of having to have wildlife as neighbors that are really remarkable. Um, so, so George, you're really into animal sounds, clearly, and we've already heard quite a few today. And they've been really fun and really interesting to listen to. But I'm, I'm curious, Jenny, what is your favorite animal sound of George's? <laughs> oh. and, and can we hear an example? Yeah. You know, I really like the wolf howl. Do you? That and probably the elk is second, an elk bugling. I jokingly say this is how I actually wooed her. Is uh, the the, <laughs> the, the, the call of the? <laughs> yeah, that's why I married. So this you. was your pickup. This is your pickup line. Yeah, there you go. You didn't. There was no catchphrase. It was just a howl. <laughs> right. Hey, baby. <laughs> it's funny because the animal sound thing. It's gotten really popular, yeah. <laughs> like with speaking engagements and things. And um, it started out, I think, just like a lot of kids, you know, little boys. You make noises with your mouth. You see what sounds you can make. And I just didn't quit. <laughs> <laughs> and w- interesting, what you know, and I also grew up kind of in the sporting culture, you know, hunting, fishing, those sorts of things. So grew up calling ducks and geese and turkeys and deer and things like that as part of that that way of life. And um, providing for your yourself, but um, when I went to college, I found that oftentimes, as I, especially when I was in ornithology, learning birds, if I encountered a bird and tried to imitate it, even if it wasn't a very good imitation, the very act of trying allowed me to. Re- I just remembered it better, hmm. and in some cases, I could imitate it well enough that I could call it in. So then I'd have the visual. So I could remember the sound, I could go back and listen to a CD and compare it, then I had the visual, I could flip through the book and figure out what this thing was. And at a certain point it just became like a a sideshow Bob routine. (laughs) (laughs) We were at a music event and this fellow who we thought was several sheets to the wind on moonshine across the the campfire from us and we're cooking baked potatoes over the coals and a friend from the wildlife department would call out a bird and I'd imitate it. And then I would make a call and then he'd identify it. And this guy, again, who we thought was just totally out of the picture, thought it was the coolest thing he'd ever heard. Turns out he was the librarian for this area college and wanted to have me come. Send me an email a couple of weeks later. Can we come and have you come and do a program for us? And we want you to do a program for the daycare kids and then a walk for the undergraduate students and a public lecture in the evening. And wow. it, all, it all came about because of making animal noises over the campfire. <laughs> <laughs> and it ended up, you know, to, to this day, being a really useful tool, not just for entertainment purposes, but for genuine education. You know, here, here's what it sounds like when this is happening. Here's, here's what it sounds like when a variation on that is going on something as simple as a raven you know like vultures in in africa keeping an eye and an ear out for the ravens is really helpful and what you normally hear from them is their territorial equivalent of stay out of the our backyard usually three ish two three four okay but like one morning we were having breakfast and instead of that we we're listening to sounds from right through the the window glass and heard <coughs> which is also a raven call you could possibly have that show up like on an on an app or a recording you know but they don't what they don't tell you is what that means and what that means is there's an interloper in someone else's backyard who's found food <laughs> and what that call does in the raven world is announce this meal to everybody as a way to encourage ravens from all quarters to come in and share in this bounty. Why do that? 
makes no sense. You 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 cook a barbecue for your family, and before you dive in to eat, you invite the high school football team over to yeah. you know <laughs> dine first. It doesn't make any sense, but what it what it ultimately pans out is is this interloper knows that if it gets caught by the resident birds, it's going to get chased out and run out, which is when you hear. So that that's the sound without even looking up. I know there's a raven chasing another raven out of its backyard. But the former is the sound of that bird, that interloper who's found food in their backyard, calling everybody in to overwhelm the residents so that everybody gets some. Cheeky. Cheeky ravens. <laughs> and so Very that particular clever. morning. Strength numbers, right? Mm-hmm, totally. And so that morning I said to her, she's going to walk the dog that day. And I'm like, walk up the draw. There's there's some kind of food up there about halfway up before the where the driveway loops over. And she came back and reported that there on top of a rock was some, were some innards and blood and hair where probably an owl had killed a, a rabbit in the night or something. And this raven found it. Wow. Incredible. Yeah. He was calling all of his mates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so um, they're very good for helping you find, if you are looking for wolves, wolves. And this particular call um, is their stay out of our backyard equivalent. And that compared to the coyote where it's that sort of yip yappy. It's, it's a much deeper, more fluid full sound that's eerie yeah that is like really cool how, how long did it take you to get that right? Uh, I don't know. I spent a lot of time alone. <laughs> <laughs> that is spot on. I could not tell the difference. One thing I've already observed um, with you guys just driving around for a short amount of time in Yellowstone National Park is that you appreciate the little things. You know, you guys notice the little goose on the side of the road and you notice you know the ponds and how the water levels have changed from previous years and you 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 really tuned in to your environment and I think a lot of people when they even do try and spend time in nature or they do try and observe their surroundings they look for the big fancy you know glossy things uh, and don't appreciate those little things do you guys do that actively or is that something that you know, you've just built up over time that skill of just noticing the little things and appreciating the little things. I think it's a little bit of our, just our personalities, you know, but I also think it comes from building a relationship with a place. You know, so many of us move around so much these days compared to past generations that we don't, we don't build relationships with people, much less landscapes in the way we used to. And, um, you know, we're driving out here in the park and you all see a road and some hills and mountains and a patch of trees, but there's this almost this fourth dimension at work for us. It's like the, the, it's time, you know, and I remember watching the grizzly come over that hill right there. And I remember the, another bear at the same time, they were coming into this carcass that was in the pond right behind us and another bear came down from from right over there through the, the trees and that small hill onto the road and scared the tar out of everybody out <laughs> 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 and you know and I remember the time that I walked out along the edge of that pond and in the nature of that very thick organic mat along the shoreline and so the, the place is is not purely in its three-dimensional form I find over time it's it's you're building upon this this relationship and well this is what happened last time that elk came through there and what's it going to do now and so it just it comes deeper and deeper it's like peeling that onion you know layer by layer you're getting to the heart of something that you never really get to the heart of but the effort of doing it makes you appreciate the journey that much more but i also also think 
that ability to tune into the little things is also just a simple matter of awareness. You Mm -hmm. know, we have so many people that will come and take classes here in Yellowstone with George and they, it's almost like you don't know what you don't know. But once people realize, oh, I can look at the behavior of a coyote and know what it's telling me about whether or not there's a wolf in the area or I can look at a raven flying with a piece of meat in its mouth and actually notice that and say oh that's connected to something else possibly a carcass in the area then you know you you then start to tune into those things in your own environment and people tell us that you know I mean you you could tell them the story about the a woman finding an interesting animal in her backyard just by learning how to tune into bird language, you know, and, and I think once you know that there's something to pay attention to, it's like this whole other world. For us, it's, yes, it's partly getting to know a place, but it's also understanding that there's this whole other set of cues and language and intelligence around us that if you just, if you tap into it, mm. there's a whole other level of connection. You get you sucked in, really. When you realize, you know, it's like you see your own backyard completely new. It's like you're seeing it for the first time, even though you've lived there 20 years or something. You know, it's like realizing that, no, all that noise that those birds are making is not just noise. (laughs) That's language. And that language is conversations between each other. It's between other species. It's between other genus and, and families of animals all contributing in certain situations to say announcing the presence of a domestic cat that's sneaking through the hedgerow or you know you, you realize and once you become part of these conversations um, as, as a rancher friend once talked about in relation to the the wolf controversy you know ca- cattle and wolves and things in talking to other people about it, he's like you cannot listen to someone else honestly if you honestly listen to someone else of the differing opinions out there you cannot help but be changed. If you truly listen, you will be changed. You, you may not agree still, but you understand their perspective. And I extend that same sort of sentiment to, to other animals. It's like, once you understand what makes the toe tick, once you understand why the cottontail is doing what it's doing, once you understand why that snake is exhibiting that behavior, you can't help but begin to Number one, notice it more, (laughs) or variations on it, but maybe you don't mow the backyard until the cottontail rabbits now have left their nest. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it's just, it's an awareness thing that it's acting upon those sensory systems that we've had all along, but in a way that helps us cope with being good stewards in, in this time and age. We have a tendency to place other people in boxes and see them as other than ourselves and I think in the same way we do that with animals you know in wildlife we see them as something other than ourselves instead of part of a community that we are all a part of and so you know by listening and paying attention to different attitudes and perspectives and behaviors in other people we see it as the same thing with animals you know the more you really tune into um, how the animals are behaving in their landscape you realize that they have individual personalities and desires and needs and you know things that are not so other from humans and so part of what we try to do um, through George's artwork and through you know a Yellowstone life is to help people understand that animals aren't so other they're sentient intelligent beings and that they're actually part of a community that we're part of also we just have to reach across the aisle and pay attention and listen you know, it's not that dissimilar, I don't think. For anybody that wants to find out more about what you guys are doing, if they want to come and, and have a look at your artwork, your sculptures, what's your website names? And, and you guys are on the socials. Would you mind just giving sure. us the handles for those? Yeah, the, the artwork and mainly sculpture website is georgebuman.com. And that's Buman spelled like human except that with a B at the front instead of an H and an extra N. So georgebuman.com and mainly the bronzes and, and some artwork on there, flat work as well. And then the blog is a yellowstonelife.com and um, we're also on Facebook with the same name as well as Instagram with the same name. 
So, and George is on Facebook as well, just under George Buman. Yeah, we'll put mm-hmm. links to all of those. Thank you. For sure. And those are the best ways to find out about what we do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Jenny and George, just again, from Joy and I, thank you so much for all your time and all your knowledge and the, the chats and the discussions today. We thoroughly, thoroughly appreciate it. And we so look forward to keeping in touch with you guys and having you over in Melbourne one day. Absolutely. Or maybe yeah. meeting in South Africa, you know. Yeah. Maybe All kinds of safari. things could work out. Yeah, that would be great. It was great yeah. meeting you guys and hearing about Sustainable Jungle and all the work that you're doing. So thank you. Yeah. yeah it's, been an, it's been an epic day, something that will stay in our memories forever. And thank you so much for introducing us to our very first grizzly bear. <laughs> wow. What a sighting. <laughs> so there you have it. A glimpse into a Yellowstone life. We hope you got as many learnings from this wonderful couple's wisdom as we did. We actually spoke to Jenny and George for close to three hours and had to take out a ton of great discussion to get it down to an hour. So if you'd love to hear more animal stories, let us know and we'll put together an extras episode. Oh, and one more thing. Here's little George sharing his favorite adventure from Yellowstone. Um, My favorite sighting or adventure in Yellowstone was when we went to... Um, the Lamar Buffalo Ranch and saw a pack of wolves up in the hills near it. Awesome. And then what, what did they do? Um, they were just like laying around. The pups were playing and the, some were leaving and hunting and most didn't have any luck, but. (laughs) They were trying. Yeah. Oh, good on them. Well, that was a fantastic little story. Thank you, George. Thank you, George.